Hey, good morning, everybody. Really glad y'all are here. It's great to see you and hear your voices. And um, we don't know each other yet. I'm Eric, and I'm uh, the lead pastor here at the Story Church. I just want to thank you for being a part of the story today. I'm, uh, I, I love this community. I love what we're about. And uh, I, I can't wait to get to today's message. However, first, I think um, a lot of us feel a heaviness given um, this weekend's events across the world. And I just thought maybe we could start with a, a time of prayer for, in case you missed, you know, everything yesterday, just the unrest, to say the least, unrest, uh, all-out war, really, in Israel um, and uh, in the region. So why don't we pray? <clears throat> Lord, we just pause for just a moment to say um, thank you for all that you are and all that you've been for us and how you've brought us and so many others through so many ups and downs of life. And Lord, we pause especially in this moment to just lift up this um, conflict that is historic and ancient, but has in um, recent days absolutely hit a tipping point. We pray for the people of Israel, especially for the civilians, who um, many of whom were killed and uh, others taken hostage. And Lord, just an awful awful situation with so much suffering and, and a part of the world that you have a special place in your heart for, God. Um, and so we lift up uh, the people of Israel. We lift up the civilians as well uh, in the Palestinian territories um, who have suffered through this as well. Lord, we pray um, that peace might prevail in Jerusalem. We pray that justice may be done to those who bring terror onto unsuspecting civilians. And we pray that, um, Lord, we would see your will more than anything else be done in the midst of this human entanglement, this human sin that has manifested itself as, as war. Lord, we don't have all the answers for a historic conflict like this one, but um, we think we do have the closest thing to an answer to all of our problems and we found that answer to be Jesus, and we just want to lift Jesus up. And Lord, would you just, um, would you come to us now and comfort us? <clears throat> would you give us wisdom? Would you give us understanding? And most of all, Lord, in a day like this, would you give us peace? We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so uh, we've got a lot going on. I'll, I'll talk more about it later at the end of the service, but just uh, want you all to be aware of everything going on. Mainly, we only got four Sundays left in this building um, uh, after today. Uh, the target date that we're looking at is November the 12th for the big move home to 3223 Westheimer Road. So just heads up, y'all. It's coming. And if you can in any way support uh, the story's big move, as y'all know, that is a costly endeavor on a lot of fronts. If you can help us meet that goal between now and the end of the year, um, the fund we've set up for that is called Prepare the Way. You can visit thestory.church slash prepare and help us get to our goal. We're already at like 30% of our goal almost, thanks to y'all's generosity. So really grateful for all of you. And, and uh, I, I love y'all. I love what God's doing. And I can't wait to be over at 3223 Westheimer Road, hopefully on November the 12th. All right, y'all have study guides. You can grab those. If you're joining us online, welcome to the Stories Online Campus, and you can access the study guides in the comments section. They'll link them there. Um, and we will uh, get to this uh, message today. This is part four of a 26-part series called Acts of the Apostles, um, how a handful of nobodies became a movement 
for everybody. So uh, this, is, this is just who we are as a church, making Jesus available and known to the whole world around us. This is what Acts was all about as well. So it's a, it's a direct hit for us to look deeper at this book called Acts. Okay, so today's passage in particular is near to my heart, not just because of how much I love it now, but because of how much I have always loved this passage. Even when I gave up on Christianity, I held on to passages like this one. And I say that for a couple of reasons. I just want you to know sort of my perspective on things. If you don't know, for 13 years, I renounced my Christian faith and still wanted to use the church to my own ends, for my own purposes, but uh, really that was just political for me. Um, I didn't believe the stuff Christians were supposed to believe, and, and, uh, and so that was me for 13 years. But I still loved passages like this one. And you might love someone who's in a similar place today. I'm going to talk a lot about what it means to be in that mindset where you still like parts of what the Bible says, but you just can't take the organized religion you've come to know as Christianity. And some of you know and love people like that, and maybe today's message will help you um, understand them and communicate with them a little bit better. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we will begin today. If you want to open your Bibles, um, I always love if you have a Bible, you can get familiarized with it by reading it with us on Sunday mornings. If not, you can access a Bible app on your phone or just uh, follow along with me, all right? So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we'll start. And this is, uh, this is going on in the aftermath of the, the birth of the church, right? So Pentecost Sunday, this is what happened next after all these new believers came to faith. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And this is the part that I loved, even when I was an unbeliever, okay? This is the part. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a conservative or liberal, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Longhorn, Aggie, whatever, whatever you are, this passage offers a compelling vision of human flourishing. And you can take the religious stuff out of it, right? And see a vision for how most of us want life to be. And that's why I could leave the Christian faith, the tenets of the Christian faith behind, and still resonate deeply with parts of the Bible like this one. I didn't like a lot of other parts of the Bible, mind you, but this I could get behind. Because who doesn't want the kind of utopia that's described in Acts 42, uh, 2, 42 to 47? I, I was so drawn to this that I, I really wanted to make this what my life was about, even if I wasn't following Jesus per se. I could take this and, and, and work with it. I wanted, a, I wanted a world like this. I wanted a world where everybody shared what they had with each other, right? I wanted a world where everybody, even the poorest among us, had enough to eat. Like I wanted a world where people enjoyed community together with glad and sincere hearts and no one was alone or isolated. Who doesn't want a world like that? Like if you don't want a world like that, 
check your heart, right? You might have a hard heart syndrome if you don't want a world where everybody has this sort of equality of worth and value and, and, and everybody has enough to survive on, to, to eat and, and, and to thrive on, right? That, that's the world that I wanted. And uh, I found glimpses of it in the New Testament and I resonated with those parts of the New Testament. I think part of the reason I resonated with those parts of the Bible during that time of my life is because I've identified pretty much as a socialist. So 13 years, 20 to 33, I called myself some flavor of socialist, you know, on a bad, bad day. I was like, I might be communist. On good days, I'm like, I'm democratic socialist or whatever. It's like, that's the, that's the mindset I was in. And I don't think I had bad intentions. And most people who identify that way don't have bad intentions. On the contrary, I could make a case that they have really good intentions. They want to see the world like I just described it, where everybody has enough and everybody gets along and everybody's joyful in community. That's a very compelling thing. And that's probably why, according to a lot of recent data, um, more than half of young adults in America either uh, are okay with or identify with socialism today. The trust level among Gen Z the trust level of socialism is far greater than the trust level of capitalism. And I know there's reasons, right? They're, they've been indoctrinated or whatever, brainwashed in different <laughs> ways for sure. And part of that's just being a young adult with, you know, this idealistic view of the world. And, and we should honor that to a certain extent. But, but something's happened where young adults um, crave a world like Acts 2, 42 to 47 describes, in a sense, or at least that's what they say they want more than anything else, and, and that's not necessarily bad. <clears throat> but what I did during that time of my life is I read what I wanted to on top of Acts 2, 42 to 47, and I read this passage as an indictment on Christianity in the modern world. So I looked at this passage, and then I looked at the churches around me, the churches I had experienced, and I said, these churches are nothing like this passage. And so what's happened to the church? My reaction to a passage like this one used to be, where did that church go? That's a church I could get down with. That's a church I could believe in. A church where everybody's all in together, selling what they have and providing for each other, always gathering in homes, always breaking bread together, always making sure everyone had enough. That's a church I could love. What happened to that church? And I used to say things like, Jesus was a socialist. And I shared memes online that said things similar to that. And then I would go home and talk to my wife, who was born and raised in a country in South America that frequently dabbled with real-life socialism. And she would have nothing of my theories about Jesus and socialism. <laughs> she said, Eric, you've never seen what real socialism looks like to its fullest extent. Right? Every, most countries have some shades of socialist uh, you know, framework. But, but to its fullest extent, he, she was like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus could not have been a socialist because he actually fed people. That's what she told me, which is a pretty funny thing to say, if you think about it. And so, so she, she tried to talk sense to me. It didn't work for a long, long time. And, uh, and, and I continued down my path, uh, a war path, really, against modern Christianity. Why do those Christians... If the Bible says this, why do those Christians act so stingy and so sanctimonious and so sad so much of the time? I see none of this 
in uh, the New Testament church, and, and yet that's what I see among Christians in general today. Well, here's the, I think here's the rub with this critique of the church. Um, it's that we get things out of order, and this happens frequently. We don't think critically enough to look at the passage and say, what's really happening here? Especially when you read the writings of a man like Luke, who wrote Acts, and we know Luke to have been a very precise historian, a very orderly man. In fact, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, opens up with this, this whole diatribe about how he set out to write an orderly account of all the things that happened with Jesus. That should tell you that with Luke, order matters, and the order in which, in which he writes things and reports things matters. It ultimately, it matters to Luke the order in which things happen. And a lot of people who say they would like a church that does more sharing and does more loving on each other and does more to meet each other's needs and does more to be attractive to the world, a lot of folks who say that miss the first verse of today's passage, which really provides the framework and foundation that allows for that sort of utopian Christian culture to even exist and thrive. It cannot thrive on its own. It cannot thrive without this foundation. It cannot thrive just on the feelings and goodwill of the Christians involved. First things first, we have to see the foundation on which that beautiful community was built. And we see that in the first verse in verse 42. So I'd like to go through that a little bit today with us before we get to the, the really fun stuff that the church was about that really got the world's attention. First of all, after all these new believers came to faith in Christ, they didn't just keep looking for more new believers. They didn't keep doing evangelism and sending those new believers out. What they did is that they gathered all these new believers together and the church was formed. And this is the first thing they did. They devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So before they started any soup kitchens, before the first Christian homeless shelter was founded, before the first prison ministry got started, before the first potluck ever happened, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? So the apostles' teaching is literally a Greek word that means um, doctrine. They devoted themselves to doctrine. Now, that is admittedly less catchy than saving the world and feeding the poor and helping those in need, like all that fun stuff that we want to see the church doing. First and foremost, they devoted themselves to right teaching, to orthodoxy. They devoted themselves to sound doctrine. And to devote themselves, that literally was a word that in Greek that literally was a, a sort of a conjunction or two words together. What do you call that? Uh, contraction. Two, two words come together as one, right? And, and what, what that, those words together mean is uh, that they uh, came together, they, they came together uh, persistent and consistent under these teachings. So they didn't just devote them, they didn't come to church when it felt convenient. They didn't submit or subject themselves to the apostles' teachings when they had time. They devoted themselves to it by persisting in it and being consistent with it, even if they had other things going on. Those other things, believe it or not, took a back seat to sound teaching. 
Now, I know as the teacher, primary teacher of this community, this seems a little self-serving, right? I just want to acknowledge that, own my bias, or whatever we're supposed to say at this point. However, it should not be lost on us that the first Christians put everything else aside to devote themselves to good, sound, truthful teaching. It could not have been comfortable or convenient. Little League took a back seat. You know, social lives took a back seat. Uh, Astros games, amen? Anyone? Bad timing for that, but yes, even that took a back seat. They raised their hands more together in the context of Christian community than they did at any of their favorite sporting events because first things had to come first. And the first, first thing was to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now, what was that? What was the teaching? Well, we can assume that since this was happening in such close proximity to the actual life in times of Jesus, that the apostles were just repeating what Jesus had said to them. That's the first guess, right? Like they were just saying all those parables on refeed. They were re reciting the, the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount and all those wonderful things Jesus said and did to the new believers. But the first thing I imagine they taught uh, is actually, it's given to us as a clue earlier in chapter two. Remember when a couple weeks ago we were talking about Peter's first sermon? And in Peter's first sermon, um, the, the, the hearers, the people in the congregation were cut to the heart. It's a great phrase. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what are we supposed to do about this stuff that we're hearing? It's cutting us to the heart. And what did Peter say was his first word? Repent. Repent. The beginning of all sound Christian doctrine is repentance. Repentance is the start of any good teaching. All right? That, that's not just Peter, by the way. Jesus' first ever sermon uh, that he gave on record started with the same word, repent. So did John the Baptist's first sermon on record. So did so many others in the and throughout the Bible, repent. We don't use that word as much anymore, do we? How many times did you tell people to repent this week? No judgment, but I'm thinking it's probably zero, maybe, close to zero. <laughs> All right? Y'all are like, that's your job, Pastor Eric. That's what we pay you for. All right, so, okay. See where you're at. No, no, no. The, the, the beginning of all sound Christian teaching is repentance, and not in a callous way. Repentance is not meant to be a judgmental message. If anything, it's a hopeful one. It's the most hopeful message anyone will ever give you. You have an opportunity to turn around. That's what repentance is. It's the invitation to turn away from the direction you're headed and to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to turn toward his gospel, to go and embrace his hope. Because the way you've been going, maybe you've been going all kinds of ways at once and you're getting nowhere and you know it, it's not working and you know you need to go a better, a better way to look in a new direction. That's all repentance is. It's a turnaround from the lies of this world toward the truth of God. Repentance is turning from the idols you've made for yourself to the only God who is real and who can save. That's what repentance is and that's where all sound teaching um, begins. And so before the Christians could start doing all the things good Christians do in the view of many, first they had to devote themselves to this kind of teaching. It doesn't, it doesn't end there. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. We, we keep reading Acts uh, 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. So repentance is an oft-forgotten word in the church today, but fellowship is an oft-watered-down one. How, how cheaply do we throw that word around these days? Like, what is fellowship? What is, if I were to ask you for a real definition of fellowship today, what would you say? Just hanging out. Just hanging out. It's a, hang, it's a Christian hangout. If we weren't Christians, it would just be hanging out. But we're Christians, so it's fellowship, right? You can do anything. If two or more Christians are gathered with Astros on or, you know, drinking a beer or smoking a cigar or whatever, it's like fellowship. This is not, we're not hanging out with cigars. This is Christian fellowship, right? So it's just, it's just so cheap. But that's not at all what it was intended with this word, fellowship. The word translated as fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which literally means coming together toward a common goal. So you should think less casual bros smoking cigars and drinking whiskey because, hey, we go to church, we're Christians, we can do this, it's fellowship. You think less that and think more something like Tolkien's um, legendary work, Fellowship of the Ring. I'm serious, like this was a real fellowship. Did they, hang, did they just get together and hang out? That would have been a really boring, unsatisfying book slash film series, right? Like they just got together and just tested each other's homebrew out for a while and then went home, you know, and that's fellowship. No, they were on a mission together, under a banner together. They were on a purposeful journey to destroy the one ring and the fires of Mordor. Amen? All right, so that was what their fellowship looked like. What does our fellowship look like? We're not just here to keep it casual with each other and to hang out together casually. Fellowship as Christians means gathering together to follow him with all that we are, to, to hear this sound teaching, but also to embrace intimacy with Christ, to share the gospel of Christ with the world around us until the whole world knows this truth that we found in him. Unfortunately, that's not how fellowship looks in the church today. <laughs> fellowship often in the church looks more like this little ad from a church that I found online, which is just men's fellowship. Coffee and donuts. Saturday at 10 in the gym. That's it. That's it. Just coffee and donuts, you guys. That's fellowship today. I'm not knocking this. Maybe they got to that gym at 8.30 that Saturday morning and all the men were told, now this is the mission. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. But most often it's just about the donuts and the coffee if we're, if we're being real. And I'm just here to say there's more. And that's what the first Christians knew. There was more to find, more to pursue in real koinonia fellowship. And I would challenge you to answer the question honestly. Um, have you experienced anything like that? I'm like, when was the last time? There's a few. I know people, because I'm, I'm in fellowship with some of you. But even that's new. We didn't discover fellowship like this as a church until everything hit the fan in 2021, and we uh, had no future to speak of. We didn't know where we were going to go. We, everything was up for debate, up for question. We didn't know if we were going to have a church at the end of 2021. That is when we finally discovered fellowship, because we had to. We could not continue to keep it casual. We needed more from one another and from God together. And so we pursued Koinonia Fellowship. In the, in the, uh, and what I mean by that is the, the, we started creating pockets of 
It started with men who would gather together at the most ungodly hours of the morning at 10, on Tuesdays at like 5 a.m., which means we all had to get up at four, you know, to get there. And, and, but, but that wasn't even the point. The point was to be persistent in it, to devote ourselves to it. And every time we gathered together, we refused to talk about Little League and Astros. And we insisted on getting in the Word together. And before we left, we would all get on, on our knees together. And every man there would pray out loud together. And the mission we gathered under then, the first six of us that became eight, has since become many, many more. I mean, um, gosh, I don't even have to count anymore, but it's about to expand again. This movement is growing exponentially. The mission was we want to blanket the city of Houston with men on their knees in prayers every single day. And if we can continue to gather persistently, even when it's inconvenient, and just do these simple things that we're doing, we don't need a book club that we're reading together. We don't need any curriculum. Our life in Christ together is our curriculum. Let's get on our knees in prayer. Let's be serious about this fellowship. And let's not let up. Let's, let's chase after the mission that the Lord has set before us. And that movement has changed my life since 2021. It's transformed our ministry. That's why we care a lot less about the show on Sunday mornings now than we used to. That's why everything about our church is geared toward depth now and not just a wide reach like it used to be. There's nothing wrong with a wide reach. But man, the depth comes first. It must come first, lest the church just get spread so thin that it ceases to exist. So it doesn't end with uh, just the teaching of the apostles and with Koinonia Fellowship. It goes on, uh, this, how the foundation was laid for this beautiful church that emerged, Acts 2.42. The, the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Who likes bread? No, amen, little man, I hear that. <laughs> Kings Hawaiian, anyone? Delicious. Go for some of that right now, actually. Now, that's part of it. The, the actual sharing of bread, sharing of tables, opening your home to strangers and fellow believers and, and enjoying a meal together, it's always been part of the Christian tradition all the way up to now. Christians still celebrate potlucks, right, and stuff like that. But that's not the totality of what was going on when they talk about breaking of bread together. Throughout the New Testament, that is an allusion to Christian worship. So anytime Christians gathered and had the breaking of bread, that's a very formal way to say it, right? It means they, they were worshiping together. The breaking of bread was the, uh, was the Eucharist. It was what we have come to call communion. It was a reminder ceremony of the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples at that Passover before he was crucified. It's what we do at the end of every service, and that's why we do it, by the way, because to worship Jesus is to break bread together and be reminded of what he has done for us. He is this bread broken for us. He is symbolically this cup poured out for us. That's why we're here, and that's why we do this every week. And in that is this call to intimacy that's deeper than most of us have experienced, really. Most of us think um, we've worshipped if we go to church. And that's, I don't mean it as an indictment or anything rigid or hateful. I'm just saying, like, if you call worship church attendance, you're not quite hitting on all cylinders yet. There's more. Worship is a state of the heart, 
Worship is uh, an invitation to intimacy. Worship is love. It is vulnerability. It is trust. It is putting Jesus where he and only he belongs on the throne of your heart. That is why Christians have always worshiped like subjects in a kingdom stand and kneel and, and, and lift their hands before their king. Because he is our king. That's why Eric Ponder, our guest worship leader today, stood up here and said, lift your hands, because that's the only appropriate posture when your true king enters the room. And so that's why Christians behave that way. If you ever thought that was weird, I get it. Christians are weird people. Worship is weird, but it's also essential to becoming the church that Jesus wants us and calls us to be. And then finally, we have the fourth component of this foundation. They devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Prayer. Prayer is a doozy. Prayer is a tough one. And there are, I'd say, probably 20, 30% of this congregation that I consider prayer warriors. I don't have to tell them to pray. If anything, they remind me to pray. Like, they're the ones that are on the front lines in that prayer battle, and I'm grateful for you. But I'm also thinking about that other 70, 80% of us who struggle to pray diligently, consistently. And I, I wonder, you know, why that is. For me, sometimes I'm seasonal in my prayers, right? I pray when it, when it feels like it's working. And I don't pray as much when I feel like I'm just talking to a wall. Anybody else got that going on? We can be honest. Sometimes it feels better than others. But to pray consistently whether it feels any type of way to you or not, to pray consistently is to pursue that trust and intimacy with Christ. To trust him that even if you don't feel him like you might otherwise other times feel him, he's there hearing your prayers. Prayer is, according to scripture, the most powerful and efficacious thing you can do with your time as a Christian. It's not a throw-in. Sometimes it, I'll catch myself, oh, and one day I'm going to stop doing this, but sometimes I'll catch my immature self saying to people, I'll be praying for you, hey, and let me know if you need anything. Do you hear the problem? Let me put it another way. Sometimes I'll say, hey, I'll be praying for you, but let me know if there's anything I can do. Okay, it's, it's worrying me how little you're picking up on this. Maybe we have a bigger problem than I thought. When you pray for someone, you're doing something for them. You're doing the best thing you can do for them. It's not that we shouldn't also round that out by delivering a meal or, you know, showing up or, uh, you know, being in community with them or doing whatever we can to meet their physical needs. But when you pray for them, you're already doing something for them. In fact, I would say you're doing the most important thing. Now, the, what you don't want to do is say, I'll be praying for you, for you and then never do. Pray for them, right? Which is oftentimes how we treat um, prayer, unfortunately. But prayer at its best is just following Jesus' example. Jesus said in Luke 6, 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. Jesus was praying all night to God, which is odd. Admittedly, is he talking to himself? You know? But I think he was, first of all, I think this is just how God is. God in, in his own right is a family, is three in one, right? And so there is community and love and communication among the three persons of the Trinity. But Jesus was also um, 
modeling for his followers the absolute necessity of prayer. And I think that's just a challenge for us all to understand we need more of this. To understand prayer is not just a a ritual thing that we do because we have to, we're supposed to, but prayer is actual fellowship with God. Prayer is intimacy with the Father. That's how you tap into his power. That's how you plug into his wisdom. That's how you know what to say to someone who presents you with a conundrum that they're in today. That's how you have words to speak when someone needs to hear a word of hope because you have already tapped into the source of all wisdom and power before you even left the house that day. Some of us are walking around powerless because we spent the night prayerless. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. If you feel like uh, your faith has just become mere religion, if you feel like it's feckless and powerless and it's just a nice thing that you do on the side, it's probably due to a prayer deficiency. Just to diagnose the most likely condition, it's probably a prayer deficiency. And if you don't know how to pray by yourself, then the answer is probably that quantity of fellowship we talked about a gathering of believers. You can gather with believers to pray. You don't need to wait for a church to figure that out for you. You can initiate and stop making excuses and dive in. Seek what you want most, all right? So why do we, why do we treat church the way that we often do? Why, why do we avoid, you know, uh, truthful teaching sometimes, or why do we just want to hear what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear? Um, Why do we just take a donut and some coffee and talk the Astros with with a buddy and call that fellowship? You know, why do we we call church attendance worship? Why why do we do these things that we do the way that we do them? Well, I I think one of the things that's plaguing our culture now is avoidance of intimacy. And, and I got into this, oddly enough, I got into this over the summer with, with the, the dating series, right? I mean, one of the biggest problems with the dating series is that the majority of single people on the dating scene today are, are intimacy avoidant and commitment phobic. And so it creates uh, an imbalance in the, in the tender sphere, let's say, where you have, I don't know what I just did to this, but whoever's Playing the guitar, your settings are different now. You have, <laughs> you have what was I saying? Or, uh, I forgot what I was saying. But you know, you know, you know what I'm. This, what we're doing, I think, is keeping it casual with Christ. And we like to date him, like a friendship with benefits type thing. You could even take that analogy farther and say we'd like, we'd like to. We'd like to have access to the church, to the body of Christ, if you will, without really making ourselves available and seeking intimacy and commitment with him. Why? I think, I'm not blaming people for doing this. I just think it's scary to go all in to a community. I think it's scary to put your heart on the line, to make yourself vulnerable. You could get your feelings hurt. You could get your heart broke. In fact, you will. 
the invitation of, tr- of Christ to all of us and to you today is to trust him enough to make yourself vulnerable and available to the people who bear his name and to watch how subjecting yourself to authentic Christian community can have a transforming effect on your life. That is what the world around the first generation church found so appealing. That is why they kept adding hundreds and thousands and whatever to their number. It wasn't because of any growth strategy. The first generation church didn't have fancy signs or great websites or gimmicky sort of giveaways for the kids on Sunday mornings or or any of the trappings of churches that are trying really hard to grow today. And sometimes we, we all want to grow. We want our churches to grow, but we, we don't want to take the narrow road that Acts 2, 42 to 47 describes. What do we want? We want the hype. Give me a hype church. Well, if, I'm not going to ask for this, but, but if I asked for a show of hands of people who have put their hopes in a hype church only to have those hopes absolutely dashed and have your heart broken, a lot of hands would go up around this room right now. And a lot of hands would go up out in the world right now. People who thought they found a church that was real because it felt real and the hype was real, only to have things fall apart because of a moral failing on the part of the pastor or because eventually the hype runs out. But we try and we try, don't we? I think of all the ways we, as the Story Church, used to try. We were a hype church. We tried. We weren't very good at it, but we tried to be a hype church. By Methodist standards, we were hype, but by the, most people's standards, it was pretty, pretty mid, as the kids say. And so it was, um, we tried, you know. It wasn't anything like this uh, article that I found recently online that talked about this church installing a water slide into their baptismal. I know. That's one way to do it. Now, now that story, as it turns out, was actually from a satirical website, the Babylon Bee. But no one would have really been surprised if it were real. And therein lies the problem. We We are hungry for hype, but we're starving for sincerity. What we really need is something true and timeless. What we really need is the narrow road of Christ that calls us to devote ourselves to sound teaching, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's boring or not, whether it's whatever, just to devote ourselves to truth and to to surrender ourselves to koinonia fellowship, fellowship on purpose, and to give ourselves to Christ in worship with all of our hearts, and, and to uh, get on our knees in prayer daily for those around us, for our families, for ourselves, for our church, for our world, just like we did at the start of this sermon for the people of Israel in that region, in that conflict. This is what it's going to take for us to accept the invitation that Christ gives us. You don't have to do all those things to be saved. You can, you can avoid all those things and still go to heaven by putting your faith in Christ, but man, there's so much more waiting for you in this life, on this side of heaven, if you'll trust Christ enough 
to make yourself available and vulnerable to the people, to the church that bears his name. There's really nothing standing in your way. I know the church doesn't always do a great job of rolling out the red carpet and saying, this is the way to go. Sometimes you're the one that has to start the conversation. Sometimes you're the one that has to initiate the fellowship or or start a new group or a new ministry for people like you. Have at it. Go for it. I'm telling you, you will have our blessing. If it's something God has laid on your heart, that's what, part of what makes the church so special. I got to wrap up, but I'll just finish up by saying, you know that church I, I really wanted to exist back when I wasn't a Christian, and I thought, what happened to that church? What I've found is that I, as I have really dived in, and we started the story, and I've, I've gotten to know other churches and other pastors in the area that are a lot like the story, what I've found is that in a lot of really important ways, that church, that semi-utopian, beautiful community that Acts 2 describes, it's real. It does exist. You just don't see it on MSNBC or CNN or on your social media feeds or anything like that. It exists. It exists in this room right now. And I can tell you, I get to witness it. The church is the only place on earth where you don't get what you pay for. And no one believes in karma. And you don't pay the price for your past sins. The only thing that we get is what Jesus already paid for. And no matter what you in turn pay into the coffers of the church, it doesn't buy you any special treatment. Your kids go to the same Sunday school classes as the kids of people who haven't given a dime to this place. It's kind of like the best parts of socialism, but without all that government evil. It's like we don't need a government to tell us to be the people Christ calls us to be because it comes from within us, from a wellspring of the love of Jesus flowing out of us and into this church and into the city and into the world because all that we really care about is knowing Christ, experiencing him, and sharing him with the whole world until everybody knows the truth we found in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this reminder today. Forgive us for the ways we've gotten this whole thing wrong and we've just sort of boiled the beautiful church you came to start down to some rote religion and ritual stuff. Lord, just free us of all of that and set us free to live um, freely, to live uh, with vulnerability and sincerity of heart. Lord, we just want more of you and nothing else, Lord. So call us to that today. I pray that if anyone here is having questions and doubts, that they would trust you more than they trust themselves, that they would turn to you and away from whatever else they've been chasing. Lord, we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.